Welcome, everyone, to the New Media Show. My name is Todd Cochran. We are here at Digital Hollywood for a special New Media Show Live. Of course, I want to welcome my co-host, Mr. Rob Greenlee. we got a great show lined up for you today. So, Rob, do you want to introduce our guest? Well, actually, we should just let them introduce themselves, shouldn't we? Todd, so, it's great to be here at, at Digital Hollywood. It's wrapping up. This is the end of the end of the, the conference, but it's been exciting yeah. having uh, podcasting come to Digital Hollywood. But yeah, go ahead, Todd. So Tyler, you want to go ahead? Sure. I'm the one holding, holding the guest mic. I'll do it. Uh, I'm Tyler Moody, VP and GM of the Warner Media Podcast Network. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kathy Doyle. I don't, is this on? Yeah? Okay. Kathy Doyle, Vice President of Podcasts at Macmillan Publishers in New York. Hi, and I'm Peter Morris, the CEO of Podcast One. Well, welcome, everybody. It's great to have you, so, have you on board. So we've been excited. This has been a great week here at uh, Digital Hollywood. They've had a full day, of course, today of just podcasting sessions. We're wrapping up. Uh, everyone here has been on a panel or two today talking about podcasting. We've been a well-attended event. Uh, what do you say? A couple hundred in the room today at least, right? Oh, yeah. It was, it's a great audience. I, I think the rooms are big. The panelists, the panelists have been fantastic at this event. So, I mean, for a first-year event to get that kind of talent in, in here and experience is fantastic for. And for during uh, one of the earlier sessions today, I, Kathy had asked how many people were podcasters, and you got about what seventy-five percent. Yeah, it was huge. So, well, we got a lot to talk about today, Rob. I know you've come up with some topics that you want to kind of cover, and I think we're just going to go ahead and dig right in. As a reminder. Uh, you can always go to newmediashow.com, get subscribed to the show. And, of course, we're uh, live on the Digital Hollywood site as well. So. Well, I wanted to just kind of kind of have an open conversation about stuff, too. I mean, if, if you guys want to bring up topics that are important to you, too, go, let's go ahead and do that. But I was going to talk about this concept, of, you know, aggregation of, of data in podcasting. You know, you know we're seeing Chartable um, start to gather information. And, and I was just curious, you know, you know from all you guys. Uh, what you think about data aggregation on third-party platforms, and is that something that we're going to see more of in the future, or is there some issue around privacy that we're going to clash against here looking looking forward? Well, I think there's, um, I think that there's there's a data gap, and there's there's opportunity for people to come in and and provide more data to publishers and advertisers. Um, you know, obviously we want to do it in a way that that's compliant with all the laws that are in place and are coming down the road. But as long as there's there's opportunity to fill in gaps for publishers and advertisers, then folks are going to come in and, and try to try to fill that gap. I don't want to say fix what's broken because nothing's broken, but but there are some some gaps in the ecosystem sometimes that uh, provide opportunity for for third party groups to try to fill that in. I think that's right. I think it's something we've got to balance. With California privacy coming on board here on January 1st, as well as GDPR in Europe, I think one of the things that consumers are becoming more wary of is the capture and sharing of their data. And one of the things that's traditionally been nice about podcasting is it was protected from that. Again, it was basic an RSS feed, and again, there was less capture of that data. I think it's something that is going to be valuable in people's minds as they go to interact with all kinds of different content on different platforms, I actually think it's a good thing and we've got to keep that balance in mind. There will absolutely be economic opportunity. There's going to be great features that come in that help advertisers with ROI, but it really must be balanced with this audience that listens on a niche basis and, and feels like their data should be protected for that listening experience. 
I think that's critically important, the issue of privacy. I would love to see what we have on the internet, because part, part of our network is a massive website that supports and fuels the podcast as well. On that platform, we can have path analysis. I can see where someone came in. I can see exactly what interactions they had, with what content, how they left, where they went. I've got the entire experience right in front of me. We don't have that yet on the podcasting side. Yeah. You know, we look at Apple for certain pieces of data. We look at Spotify for some others. Um, you know, we look on our lips and our host platform for some of the other things that we get. But it's not all in one nice, neat place. And right. I think it's, it's, I would say, many years away from really right. having that entire user flow, if you will, back-end user flow for those of us who are publishing. I mean, in some ways, I think it adds a level of complexity for the podcaster, right? Oh, to, I mean, I mean yeah. there's data here, data there, data over here. What to believe? I mean, what's accurate? What's I mean? There's just a lot of question marks. I know, Todd. What do you think about all this stuff? You know, I had heard that there was uh, some of the media buyers were starting to request additional information beyond download data. So I guess it really boils down to is what exactly are they looking for? How are they using this attribution? How are they using that data as a way to set advertising rates? Are they starting now to give it some sort of an influencer score? And I think that's my concern because, you know, the audience is the audience and the host is the host. And I think that audience members that are engaged with those shows, you know, does it matter if I have influence? Well, maybe as a, a podcast hosting service company, but does that make a difference when it comes to someone's decision to buy a product? I don't know. They're, they're going to be influenced a little bit by me recommending it, but then again, if I don't have 500 Twitter followers, are they going to say, oh, he's only worth $10 CPM? Are they going to weigh that into the advertising score? I think the issue there is inconsistency, right? You're going to have some people who are going to be pumping up their numbers, pumping up the experience. Media buyers want consistency. They want to know exactly who's, you know, what, what is the listening period? You know, what's the duration? What's the demographics? And it's all over the place. Yeah, I, I can understand why it's hard for some of the bigger brands to jump into the space with really large spends just because of that inconsistency. I think that's right. I think also it depends on what kind of advertiser you've got. If it's somebody that's direct response, really what matters is the conversion rates, right? Yeah, yeah. The rest of the data is almost irrelevant. Again, if you set an internal goal of 100 widgets to be sold, does it matter if a million people listened or, you know, 101 people listened as long as you got that particular conversion? And then you can argue about the cost of the spot, if you will, on a CPM basis to get to that conversion. But it really is about the conversions. What's interesting is you got to think about for DTC products and direct response, what percentage of people that actually learn about the product or service from a podcast actually use the promo code associated with that? And again, I heard somewhere that roughly 10% do. And that there's another 20 to 30% that actually end up buying the product or service. They Either the promo code expired, they didn't go back and get it. So what's interesting with some of this technology is it's going to showcase that it still drove that conversion, even if you didn't use that. So there's some interesting pieces in that. But ultimately, I do think it really is just very simply about getting that connection with the host. Because if you saw, we released it at the IB this year, the study with Edison around super listeners. And those are people that are defined as um, listeners who uh, listen to five podcasts a week. 60% of them actually appreciate the ads in their podcasts. So that connection with a host actually transfers. That sense of loyalty is there. And that's incredibly valuable in this media. And no matter what you do, in a sample, in the standpoint of capturing data, the foundation of 
joy and loyalty and appreciation for these advertisers. And the value in hearing this podcast is so strong compared to any other form of media that it needs to have a slightly different set of rules because it's just different. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. It's, it's just a different thing. And so there's, there's an education there for the buyers. There's an education there for, for the sellers to a certain point. But, you know, it, 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 so I don't think that we need to, to completely bend to the demands like that, that we have to provide the same kind of data that another ad buy uh, you can get, you know, with, with a cookie related thing or, or, or something else. It's, it's not going to get there. And that's not, we don't need to go there, but if we, if there can, if there can be some, you know, a little more data yep. and, and stuff, it's always going to be its, its own unique thing. And not everybody's educated on that yet. So what I'd like to do is ask the audience, if you get an RFP that all of a sudden has some expanded segments in it where they're asking now for more data anonymize that data on that rfp and we'd love to see a copy of it we want to see what additionally is being asked that you haven't been asked for before and then we can talk about it in a future new media show so you can email it to rob or i and uh, we'll take a look and we'll give you our own uh, analysis on this but again anonymize it so we don't uh, know who what organization they come from but uh, we'd love to see those additional fields that they're asking for rob yeah i was just going to talk about a it's kind of a derivative of, of this in, in around brand advertising so i mean this whole attribution is around conversion and and being able to track that but just like what you were saying peter there's there's a certain amount of audience that engages with the advertiser way past the ad campaign right so there was a brand message that was driven uh, how does the content provider get credit for a sale that happened three months from now because of the frequency of impression Sure. I think it's a great question, Rob. And that's the right question. I think when you look at the when you look at the digital landscape, and keep in mind this is these are averages, so take them with a grain of salt, but 0.5% of people in the low end state that they've ever purchased a product or service they learned about in a pre-roll advertisement on YouTube. 0.6% on Snapchat, 0.9% on Twitter, 2.9 on Pinterest, 3.1 on Instagram, 4.7 on Facebook, and the two biggest are 7.6 and 8.9 on Microsoft Bing and Google Search. And the last two make sense because when you've when you're searching for something, you've got purchase intent already. The industry average in podcasting is 61%. And again, it's a different form, that level of connection matters. These are people that are listening for 48.3 minutes on average by themselves in a hyper-intensified soul fashion. And their retention of ads, their commitment to those products or services is really big. So when you look at how these things should be adjusted, one of the things I would tell brand advertisers are don't worry about the data as much. It works in the DTC DR space and it will work the exact same way with really powerful reads from talent. It works. That's why these DTC companies in many cases have really been chipping away at the market share of these traditional brands. They've been, they've been eating their lunch and it's been, they have been the first to adopt podcasting because they saw the, the cost efficiency of advertising in this medium. So you can fight over the level of attribution and the data that you need, or you can realize this just works for those companies. It really has. Every mattress company, MVMT watches, ZipRecruiter, again, you name it. These companies that took advantage of it, they have really taken market share from these traditional brands, and traditional brands need to get into this. Why is the perception then that podcasting continues to be held at a higher standard, higher measurement standard? It, it's almost... 
to the point of insanity because you know yeah. you look at radio and you look at TV and they do this you know they get they, they come up with some hocus pocus number on what it drove for sales and then yet podcasting were held to this much higher standard I, I just it, it's okay but to me I like why why have we been driven the into sponsored this link um, mentality right the banner ads I don't think it's mentality, that right? entirely yeah, right? I think a lot of it is just because it is such a new medium Buyers are concerned. They're confused. They want the consistency we just talked about. To me, it, I mean, I was—I worked in digital media back in the late '80s, early '90s. We built the internet. What, that was on the team at WSJ.com. We had the same concerns from digital advertisers back then. It's going to evolve. It's going to change. It's going to shift, and it's going to get better. But for now, I think people just need to. A lot of people are afraid of the medium. They don't know it. So, yeah, and, and, and they have good reasons for being right. concerned. And is there some other advertising? I've been thinking about this for like the last ten years. Is there some other advertising model? that podcasting needs that's so different than what we have in traditional media, more about engagement, right? And I don't know how we do that, you know, without diving too deep into privacy. Yeah, I don't I don't think you have to, to change it all that much. I mean or, or change it at all, really. I don't know that there's a, a completely different model. I think it's 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 education, consistency, trust. It's it's you know, it's going to those things. I mean I work at for a pretty large T V company and I tell people inside all the time like well, how do we know people didn't get up and go to the bathroom and leave their TV on? Like, what right. what, are, what are we telling those people? And and but you know, it's a it's obviously TV advertising has been around a long time. People trust it. There's consistency to it. They understand it. it. We're we're not there yet with 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 podcasting. And I think it's what Peter said. It's the results. Yeah, it's the results. That's what matters. Yeah. But to your point, it's and it's exactly what you said, Todd. It's. It's something that's accepted. How radio is measured and traditionally been measured is, it's crazy. It's insane. But it's very easy and it's standardized and it's accepted. And I think advertisers are looking at that. But the other part about this that's important is every major digital platform has created their own sandbox of rules. How you measure on Facebook and the dashboard they give advertisers is entirely different than what you see on Snapchat or Twitter specifically whether it's duplicated uniques, whether it's unduplicated, whether they're products that allow you to skip the ads or not. It's all kinds of different data and measurement around that. Again, I think to your point, because podcasting is new, there's this push-pull where you're trying to push and test and really make sure this is real. And that's why the point that I really want brand advertisers to understand, this works without a shadow of a doubt in conversion for direct-to-consumer brands. Otherwise, they wouldn't spend a dollar advertising yeah, here because yeah, it has to lead to sales. Yeah. And none of us would be here. So it, right. it absolutely does work. So worry less about trying to track every single piece of it. It, without a shadow of a doubt, works better on a cost basis than any other form of media. We get, I mean, honestly, it's, it's amazing the response we get. Grammar Girl did a campaign for Mr. Clean, um, what are they called? The things that clean this, the, I don't know what they're called. Anyway, people started to tweet at her and said, you talked about it from a very personal experience of using that to clean your shower. I had stuff in my shower I couldn't clean for 15 years. I used that product because you told me to. And guess what? It cleaned my shower. We get that all the time. The engagement with the hosts and the level of genuine... Um, endorsement for a product. You can't get that in any other medium. So, I mean, Todd, you keep raising this, this topic, and I do too, about how do we get more shows in the advertising game? You know, I mean, the big brands and the big um, advertising agencies just want to buy big shows. But how do we get more shows involved here? Because I think, I mean, that's know, how we're going to grow the revenue. You the know, medium, and I've said right? this for years and years and years, that we, you know, I have a hundred different campaigns worth of 
uh, data knowledge that shows that the small shows actually perform better than the big shows because they're more intimate with that audience. They often know a percentage of the audience by name. It's just kind of crazy, but it's it's just the way it is. But yet the brand ever eaten the DR, the brand advertisers, everyone's kind of ignored, you know, the the 90% of shows that are out there that are left to, to be monetized. So um, well, I think when, when you're... Uh, Totally valid point, but as it's still a very manual ad process. And you think about all the the script back and forth and approvals and talking points and you know the amount of people hours that go into putting you know a host read into a show with a smaller audience. It's I, I can understand where an advertiser would be like, well, I, also, I need a bigger show. But there's also a different way to look at it. You know, I go back to the beginning when we were doing 500 shows on an ad buy. Everyone had the same ad copy. Everyone had the same promo codes. It was like a I, I don't want to say three musketeers type thing, one for all. You know, basically we all we all went together as a group in the in the ad campaign measurement was uh, performance was based upon the collective. And if the collective did good, we got a renewal. And I think maybe that's what's missing is everyone's used to doing one off with each shows and having to go through this big manual process that really doesn't need to be done, especially if you're delivering, let's say, 400 shows are, are delivering the same amount of volume that 10 of the biggest shows would have. Why go through the expense of creating 400 ad copies? Let's do one, one promo code. Let's get her done. Let's move on. But the media buyers are so hyper-focused on cherry-picking shows and saying, oh, that one didn't meet performance, yet they can't get in. They do it in network TV. They'll buy 20 shows, and they'll look at the measurement across 20 shows, but yet they won't buy 400 podcasts. It, it's it's mind-boggling. They will now, but it'll be show agnostic because they're going to use dynamic ad insertion. You're not going to know who the host is or the show. It's just going to target that demographic. What you lose when you do a campaign like that on such a large scale is the personalization, too. I mean, that's one of, that's the beauty of what our hosts bring to the table. I have an ad operations person. It is her full-time job to look at every single script, make sure it's custom-tailored to that host. If there's questions or things she thinks the host can do better that are not covered in those talking points, she goes back and she asks and she pushes. And she says, Monica would do a much better job positioning this if you let us rework this copy this way, if you let us talk about this kind of a, you know, topping for the English muffin than this topping. We do that. And we do it, we do it because we know our listeners and the hosts, uh, you know, want to deliver the best possible experience. So you're talking about, it's kind of two different things. You know? But at the same point, we did that before where we gave, trusted the host. We, we followed up. We made sure we listened to the copy. We provided feedback. So I think it can work both ways. But uh, you, you, know what, you know what's going to happen? The media buyers, to your point, are going to go through every single one of those host-read ads. And they're going to say, this one, you know, mispronounced the name of the product. This one didn't quite get the promo code right. It could have been an I. It could have been an O. I mean, you know, and that... Yeah. They're very savvy at that now. They get it, and they, they'll ask for make goods on every one of those. Yeah. You're, you're and right. That's where, and that's where I come in, and I'm the hammer, and I come back to the host and said, okay, you screwed up. You, you owe me one. So, you know, it goes two ways, too. Uh, the thing I want to add that, that you guys are right on is there's a piece of this that's the element of control. So I worked at Funny or Die for a long time, and part of what we did is we created brand entertainment on behalf of advertisers. They would come to us and say, you're the expert in this field. You're authentic. You're able to relate to the millennial audience that we want organically with something that's built around the product or service. Now, we're going to trust you to do this. 50% of them would tell us up front that they trusted us and it would actually follow through. Some of them would demand that we do it their way, even after telling us they came to us because they don't understand how to do it. But the only way that I can see to scale that is to go to that point of trust. 
you're reaching out to a thousand podcasts because you're right in that your conversion percentage might be really good. If you're a vegan bodybuilder and you've got 40,000 listeners, but 10,000 of them buy that vegan supplement, that's an incredible conversion and your ROI is amazing. And that's a smaller show. But how you do that is to wrap all of this up, give them the copy and allow them the freedom to make it come alive and trust them to do that. But that's a difficult thing to let go of control. Yeah, trust. it is. And you know, I, I, you know, I've got media buyers I worked before said, just trust me, I'll take care of you. I'm, I'm your hammer. I'm the one that's going to do the enforcement. And, you know, and they trust me. So I think there's some of that that is actually the truth, is that trust piece. So I, I got an invitation from a, uh, from a large company. They asked me to come talk to them about podcasting and podcast ad buying. And, and they said, we don't want you to come pitch us, but can you just tell us about some of the basics in the industry? And, and I, I said, sure. And I started kind of ticking through some things. And I said, well, you know, a lot of people in this space, a lot of buyers in this space like a baked-in ad. And they said, what's that? And I said, well, it stays in the content in perpetuity. And they, they, kind of, they were like, whoa, why would someone want that? We, we want control over our campaigns starting and stopping. We have very specific, we do this in a very specific, meticulous way. We wouldn't want our ad to stay in something past a certain date. And I said, okay, I, you know, I understand. And then I said, another thing people in this space really like is host rad ads, where you give the host some bullet points and you let them sort of ad-lib around, and they were like, no, 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 we don't, we don't want someone ad-libbing around our, and, they, and they're like, you know, okay, forget it, you know, maybe this isn't for us yet, you know, so I, yeah. I, I think, you know, it, it can certainly be, if you think about those big brands yeah. and how careful they are with their messaging and their ad campaigns, there are elements to how things work now that, that don't work for them. I was just going to add to that, I think you're right, and to me, that fits into the phrase brand safety that everybody's throwing around. It's right. the control, it's the trust, it's all those pieces. But the truth is there's another side of brand safety. And that is if you are not safeguarding your brand and DTC products and these brand new companies are willing to do this and they're taking your market share, that is not you protecting your brand. So there's uh, two parts of them, this. Didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> but again, I think that's really important because, again, you look at all of these disruptors and they're the ones that are willing to do this and they are absolutely carving away yep. at these companies who are afraid to try that. And it is so important for them to come in because the difference between this and what we saw with digital video, which was just a scale game in pre-rolls and banners and everything else, mm -hmm. is you know the conversion works here. It does. All of the data all of the DR companies, all of the DTC brands, it works for a fact. So these companies need to start evolving and doing that and being willing to let go for that and live to these baked-in spots, of course, and let go of the freedom to allow for the ad-living sort of resonates with people. Yeah, for the record, I agree with you. I was just playing devil's yeah. advocate. <laughs> so I want to kind of change text a little bit here and um, talk of targeting. Um, see stuff. And get all of your guys' thoughts on, do we really think that uh, spending a lot of effort and doing a lot of um, um, IP targeting is worth it in the long run? Uh, does it actually work? Does it, does it produce enough ROI to make it, to justify all the effort that it takes to do targeting based on IP in the face of, you know, the climate, growing climate of privacy? And then also, you know, maybe there's some data that shows that it's maybe not worth it. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, I mean, I'll, I'll start. I think that it's a tough question to answer. I think for some it works. We've done campaigns with 
local car dealerships, right? So Southern California Toyota yeah. or something like that. And, and that makes a lot of sense because if you're geographic targeting, geographic targeting specifically, I'm because speak of oh, psychographic targeting, right. you know, again, I think it can work in some instances. I think it is expensive and it definitely can take away from the value of that host red spot. And because we know as people adopt one podcast, it becomes part of their daily ritual. They will often go back and listen to older episodes. And if it's not a baked in host read, you're missing out on the value of that. So I think it can be for geography, psychographic sometimes, um, but I still think the most value without question is that host read baked in spot. And I think the jury's out. I mean, you know, it did, I think for, for some people, there's going to be a different level of effort to it than, than others. And I don't think we know enough uh, now to say that it, it is going to work or is not going to work. Because, you know, as I said earlier today, I, some of it's also a scale thing. So, you know, the, oh, you're going you're yeah, to have to totally. raise your prices if you're doing all this effort to target someone. Right. And, and, at, and, you know, and at, at, a, at a certain point, like I, I said earlier today, like if you're looking for, you know, female auto intenders between 25 and 32 in Tulsa, just, just drive the car to her house. Right. You know, because that, that's, that's probably going to be more effective than, right. you know, running, running your, your targeted campaign. Because what, sli- well, I mean, what you're doing is you're slicing and dicing your audience into smaller and smaller subsets to yeah. sell to advertisers that want to target that subset. And it's like... But that's going to be very valuable over time. When we get to scale and, you know, when right. we look at a, a platform like Megaphone, they've got the iHeart inventory. So for them, it might make more sense. Can we actually do it with all these privacy Well, that's what I was just going to say. I, right. think, I, think, I think technically the capability is obviously there. I think when we have the audience, scale will be there. But I don't know. The whole GDPR and privacy thing... I don't know how the industry is going to solve that. I know platform by platform, maybe there are ways, but you can't block, you can't target without the IP address, and that's going to be... That, yeah. that's, that's the key. How is someone going to opt That's out? the key. The approval is how, how do you determine whether somebody's opting in or opting out? How are we going to do that? Can we fix question. that today? It would be great if we could. Todd, isn't that for you to fix? Yeah. Well, you know, first of all, I'm not going to do any IP targeting. So I'm already on the, on the, on the case that we're not going to do that. So, But I think... As a podcaster and knowing my audience, I know who my audience is already. I know that. So I think podcasters have to take some extra effort and learn who their audience is. And so that that way, when they have a deck, put a deck together, they can say, this is how my audience is broke down. Now, maybe that isn't going to be narrow enough for the person that is trying to uh, target, again, the 22-year-old pregnant mom or the the 21-year-old guy that's... uh, dropped out of college and has got student loans to pay for. That's not maybe going to match up directly. But we're already being tracked across multiple platforms when we do Google searches. So we're already getting nailed anyway there. So I'm I'm not a proponent of this. I understand there's value there. But for me as a podcaster, as a business owner, it just makes me cringe a little bit. Uh, That may go against, uh, maybe that's a bad business model to approach. But at least at this point, that's, that's where I'm at. I have a question. How are we as an industry going to enable people to opt out? Right, right, opt out. Yep. It's going to be at the listening end, right? So apps. Well, with all these different platforms, right. will you have right. to do it on, on Libsyn and then on Spotify and then, I mean, on everything you listen on, you know? Right. Yeah. That's, that's the question. Yeah. 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 I mean, how we pull that together. Yeah. I agree. All right. Do we, we, how much time do we have? Can we figure that out? Well, we got plenty of time. <laughs> Keep talking, Kyle. <laughs> But if you look at GDPR and everything that's already in place in Europe and the, the, the links you have to do 
to go to actually share data and the, the, the agreements and the letter of the law there, it's very difficult, very expensive, um, even if you wanted to do it. And the anonymization of the data and everything else that goes along with it, you know, your lawyer bills alone are just going to be, whew, you know, it's going to make a campaign. You're going to have to have a very, very high CPM rate for a campaign just to afford the, the legal bills to get this in place. Let's talk about the IAB um, guidelines, metrics, and how that's going in the space right now. I mean, get your guys' opinions. I mean, there's like 10 companies now that have been approved, certified, compliance. You know, that's been a bone of contention on the show for a while is yeah. because there's lots of people, lots of platforms claiming compliance, but they're not certified. But it's actually when you get certified, you become compliant. So it's this weird kind of dichotomy of misunderstanding and confusion. Um, I don't know, Todd, I don't know, you're fully into this. Yeah, so, you know, we were one of the first, NPR and us got uh, certified first, and uh, we spent a lot of time in New York and in media buyers and talking with brands, and, uh, you know, they're all very interested in it, but there's a level of education that is having to be done because, again, there's this, a lot of companies saying, oh, we're compliant, and there's a confusion on, Okay, so they're compliant. Oh, yeah, but they're not certified compliant. You have to go in and make the, you know, give them the information on why that's different. And we've seen too many companies already who said they were compliant that when they become certified, took a major haircut with their numbers, causing all kinds of ripple throughout the space. So I, personally, I, I'm all on board. I think that the, the leveling the playing field is good. It's only really affecting, at this point, probably DR. But DR already knew what their performance was. So I think what hopefully it's going to accomplish is allowing the brand advertisers to be confident that the data they're getting is is across the board straight in the brand. You know, this is what we really did it for. We did it for the brand advertisers. Right. It's and, the consistency that Kathy was yeah. talking about. You know, for someone for for someone new to the space and they, you know, they talk to one group, they talk to another group, they see all different kinds of, of numbers. Yeah, and it, and it's all over the place. And and you're right, the the DR buyers that have lifted, you know, lifted this industry up for a long time and benefit benefited from it. They know already. So they they don't, you know, they don't really need to they they can already flatten out those numbers on their own but right. you know for the for the new folks to the space yeah just as you were saying it's it's consistency it's amazing too every question we've talked about ties into these same issues privacy data consistency technology they're all interrelated we've got as an industry some you know heavy work to do yeah. that's right uh, you know that's what i was going to say it's not that simple right i think one thing everybody should know is that the certification processes can take a while and it's also expensive. I mean, this is something that, that they charge you for. So yeah. this isn't all, you know, again, nothing against anything, but it's not simply a pro bono or altruistic thing. It is, it costs money. You're a part of this. You got to get certified. You do this. But I don't think it's that simple. We are dealing with so many issues from privacy to attribution to other things and reception pixels that are placed on websites. There is a lot of change that is here. And I think this may be one small piece of it or not, but it's a very complicated overall issue. But I think too, you know, and I know there's proponents and I know there's people that are against the the standards. And I understand, you know, having personally went through the, and I call it, uh, you know, subjectively an anal probe is what you go through because they... You know, they go into the deep depths of your uh, code and, and you look at your accounting practice. So it's it's a process. I understand that. But I think... They put their code on a server, but okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, in the long run, though, I think that when I know that, you know, you know, we went through this, I know Libsyn went through it and the other companies that went through it, 
I know what, what they went through and I feel confident when I'm saying, when someone calls me and I get this conversation a lot, do you trust Libsyn numbers? And I say, yes, because I know they went through the process. Other companies, I can't necessarily say that. But uh, I think in the overall, the goal was to level the playing field and everyone's going to have their own marketing spin. And they're going to have their little extras that they do. You know, we've got a little extra salt that we put on our stuff too for reporting. So I think that's where the differentiation is going to come in. But I think the the measurement stuff is, I think it's been adjudicated, but we'll see over time if, if it was worth the effort. What's the deadline? There is no deadline. No. And matter of fact, I think now we're starting to look at some new stuff that's coming in, new data that's coming in, whether or not there needs to be adjustments to the to the guidelines, and if there needs to be adjustments to the guidelines, then what does that mean? We're going to reset the clock and everyone has to go through again? I don't know. So that's, the questions are going to have to be answered. And yes, very, very expensive process to go through. So is there any other um, um, issues around this? I mean, it's like um, there's this open metric standard that's been bouncing around out there that some of the platforms are trying to adopt. So we're starting to see a, another fragmentation phase they're, in they're this also. And what's, right. where there's going to be real issues is they're calling it a standard. Right. It's a hard it's, standard. It's a hard standard. Hard. And Versus we couldn't, the guidelines we that couldn't IB get, said. We got 36 right. companies to agree to a guideline. Do you think we can get 10 to agree to a standard where it's actually a locked-in standard? I think that would be a miracle in itself to get those same 36 companies to say, yes, we agree to that standard because – Everyone's got an opinion, and believe me, it's going through all those that process, that wasn't a pretty, it wasn't pretty, but we all came to an agreement at the end. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, and I, I just don't think that's ever going to happen. I also don't think it should. As we talked about, it's incredibly complicated with privacy issues, with GDPR, with attribution, with receiver pixels. But beyond that, let's not get away from the fact that Really right now, this is still a hit-driven medium, and it's between an advertiser who recognizes a show is going to speak to their demographics, and it's up to them with you as you break down the demographics and everything else to help build a campaign around their product or service that's going to resonate with the fans and is going to activate them into motion. And that really is what the core of this is, and I think we're at this interesting inflection point for the industry where we're trying to figure out which way that we go, but ultimately we can't lose sight of really what the value is for the audience members, what the value is for the hosts as your partners, and what the value is to these advertisers, specifically in those live reads and the fact that those work no matter what else is going on in the background. We've all heard some really bad live host read ads, right? You know, you hear some people, some hosts just perfunctorily read them and you go, oh my God, no one's ever going to respond to that. So I think we're all in the same boat. We take great pride in delighting advertisers the same way, or hopefully the same way, we delight listeners. I mean, do we think that there's a risk that the advertising and podcasting will become more like radio and be less trusted? Um, I mean, if you think about the, the, the origin of podcasting, it was really a sticker to the man medium. It was like anti-commercial. I know when I started podcasting, I had ads in my radio show that I put out as a podcast. I didn't feel like a cool kid that I was running ads in my podcast. Um, because back in the early days, and Todd will confirm this too, I mean, and when you did run ads, oftentimes those, those advertising buys wouldn't uh, turn out the way the advertiser had hoped because they would send out samples of the product to the podcaster and the podcaster would be honest on the show about whether it was good or not, right? They, they would bash their advertisers, right? That doesn't happen anymore. And I guess part of that concern that I have is, 
is that trust. I mean, that's what's at stake, is the trust with the listener. All the time, all the time, for that reason. We want to be genuine. The answer is yes. There's a risk of it. Yeah, of course there is. I I mean, it's it's still a very special ad experience. Um, Tom Webster calls it a special snowflake in the in the ad ecosystem where people trust us. They 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 trust the hosts and um, and even even brands that aren't getting host reads get lift from being associated as a a supporter of a of a show. Um, But yeah, of course there's there's a risk of us. There's absolutely a risk of us screwing that up. I agree completely, and I'll, and I'll add to that. It's, enti- it's entirely possible. But the other, the other thing I'll tell you is, if you look at that super listener study, only 25% of people think there are too many ads in podcasting compared to, I think, 64% in radio and television or something like that. Um, and while 49% of people see that there are more ads this year than there have to be than there were last year, we've had a lot of run rate on that side. But beyond that. What's interesting to me about podcasting is it's the only form of media right now where since the early days, the sort of OP, the original podcasters, they created this expectation from listeners that in order for us to bring you this podcast that you care about for free with very limited commercial breaks, you need to activate, mobilize, and ultimately be monetized at these end destinations for these products or services. It was this reciprocal relationship. And I think that that honesty, even when we're doing lots of these reads, comes through. In traditional radio, you might have 16, 18 minutes of commercials. In podcasting, you're going to have four or five, maybe six. It's a very light load. And this expectation is different in this media, this honesty. So we got to be very careful not to screw it up. And, and God willing, we won't. But I also think that the consumers are going in with a different set of those expectations than they are compared to anything else that you consume. You know, if I look at my own show and being the OG, and, you know, I've had an advertiser, the same advertiser on my podcast for 14 straight years. And when I tell my audience, hey, we're a little behind this month on GoDaddy conversions. I need you to step up because we got to keep the lights on. They do, you know, and it's one of those. And I don't try to, you know, roll the siren every month, but I encourage them and to share with their friends and family members. And because so that's how. My perspective is, is I, my audience, hey, we're, I'm delivering you value. If you can drive someone to using a promo code that I have, great. That's going to help the show. Right. So I think um, from my perspective, that's how I operate. But at the same point, I also know show ad load. Every podcast is different. Um, I've never done pre-rolls. Uh, I just, I understand that there's a lot of discussion in the space right now on how valuable pre-rolls is. But for me, I want to get in and start talking to my audience. I don't want them to be annoyed. And I do the ad a little bit in. But at the same point, I've known from experience that if I go to a three ad, three mid-roll ad, roll, uh, ad load, my audience starts to go down. I lose people. So I go back to two, the numbers come back up. So every show is different. Three ads within one break. Three ads within a show. So I don't do two ads in a row. I do a, a like a, like early on, mid, and near the end, I'll do a third ad. But if I do a third ad, I start getting hate email. People start to unsubscribing. So I think every show has to figure out what their ad load is. When I hear shows saying they're doing two pre-rolls and five mids and two posts, I'm like, wow, really? That To me, that is not podcast. That's radio. And I just can't imagine going to that heavy of a load. But some shows can support it. Well, Todd, I mean, 
you do a lot of live read stuff, and it's and it's and it's typically pretty long reads, right? So, I mean, what's the duration that you're you're currently doing? Two minutes, okay? Yeah, a two-minute two read, right. or maybe a minute right. and a half, or maybe sometimes it's thirty seconds. It all depends, but it. Uh, but I only run one ad spot too, so you know, my regular listeners have been there for years and years and years. I'm sure they fast forward through, but there's a whole science to it as well. I'm doing it for the new people that have come in the show. It's not necessarily for the people that have been listening for five years. It's the people that are that are new. I think the ad experience needs to um, it needs to be in the, the the tone of the show. It needs to it needs to fit the show. You've found the sweet spot for for yours, but you know, in terms of you know, is it radio or is it is it podcasting? You know, if someone's listening to a time shifted radio show and they're used to hearing eighteen minutes of ads an hour, and now they're only getting six. You know, it's 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 audio content that's published over an RSS feed, and it, it has more ads than maybe something that's you know born in podcasting. But the ad load is something that that listener of that content has has come to um, live with, I guess. You know, for for lack of a better term. But so I think it's it's content specific. It's your own show. Right. You know your listeners, your sponsors know you. We don't have that flexibility to some extent. We're mid-roll sold. So we have to, you know, the, typically the campaigns that are bought on our shows are bought on other shows as well. So it comes back to the consistency we were talking about before. Their advertisers are probably not going to tolerate us just moving the ads around where we think they fit best. We have to bridge that gap and make sure we're doing what is within their expectations and what is delivering the result. I thought it was a really thoughtful point about managing the loads specifically to your shows. And it is, it definitely is difficult when you're dealing with the overall network, but I think you're absolutely right. And I think we all agree that the best reads out there are a part of the content. When you hear, you know, a TI or an Adam Carolla or a Conan O'Brien, and it's really part of the content, to me, it goes back to the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. We know those are commercials, but they're so funny. We just don't care. It's not about fooling the audience. It's just, it's fantastic. It's great entertainment and you derive value from it by itself. So I think the more you can lean into it, the better. But one thing I'm curious to learn about from you guys, and I'd love to get your perspective is for the first time ever, I'm hearing from advertisers that their definition of pre-roll is changing. I'm hearing from some advertisers that they're looking at pre-rolls as something that is occurring in the first five minutes of content, which, by the way, I think is nuts. To me, a pre-roll, by definition, is something that occurs prior to the launch of content. So I'm just curious, how do you feel about that? Well, I call that an early mid-roll is what I call it. So, I mean, I think it's a better, it's a better definition of what it actually is. Right. And I, I, I firmly believe in it. You know, Todd's been doing it for years. Um, I'm not a big fan of pre-rolls. I mean, I I think it's like throwing a stop sign up. But but that's, but but that's my point. What is a pre-roll to me? If you've got talent who's doing three minutes of content, talking about what's going on in the world, their point of view, this is what's happening on my show, giving you some sound bites. And then you do your first read. That's not a pre-roll. That's a that's a mineral. So I'm just curious because we're starting to hear from advertisers that I don't know if you are either. But it's not. I'm with you. We're pushing back on that hard. Pre roll is a pre roll. Something that's in the content is a mid roll. That's yeah. Yeah, and I think the terms early, mid, and late mid rolls I think uh, applies, and we maybe maybe need to adopt that kind of terminology to be clear. So, what do you guys think is the is the length of content before a mid-roll should be. We just do them in the 
Typically. I don't, I don't yeah. know. No, I mean, <laughs> how much content yeah, can no. you get before you go to an ad break? Like every 10 minutes, 5 minutes, 15 minutes? I mean, we do do some within the first minute. Not always at the very top of the show, but within the first minute. And then we, we, we look at it a couple different ways. Obviously... Um, in order to get the campaign paid, we have to put it where our sponsor has told us they want it, which is a mid-roll. And if we put it too late, we'll get pushback. If we, but if we put it earlier, that's typically okay. Right. We also just look for the right break, the right place to put it, especially in narrative podcasts. You don't want to break a story. It's very difficult to do. That's what we do, too. Yeah. I mean, we agree. I mean, it's got to fit the content. It's got to make sense. Advertisers have got to trust us to get, to, to get them to understand we want this to do well. You are our lifeblood, but it also has to work with the audience. You demanding it be placed in a specific spot is not necessarily the best thing for you and your product. Giving us guidance as to what works, I think is important, but we are invested in this and this working for you as much as you are, believe me. So it's our goal to give you something that's going to work and resonate. I think, it, Rob, I think it's kind of like the question of what's the what's the uh, the right length of a podcast? Right. How long should a podcast be? Well, right. you know, as long as it's good, right? right? And so, you know, where how much content should you have before before there's an ad? It's, it, it needs right. to right. has to fit the has right. to fit the show, and and you know, I think in some of the more dense uh, narrative podcast sometimes sometimes you need a break yeah. you know sometimes you're you're absorbing so much of a story and a character or or it's a heavy topic that like as uh as an artist someone making the content you know there's an art form to it and to know when okay we've given them enough now let's you know and maybe it's not even an ad break maybe it's just some sort of sonic interlude but you know it, it again content driven yeah, yeah. Some, some shows and series will will um do all their ad breaks at the beginning of the podcast. I mean, not as a pre-roll, but early in the show. Like they'll have like three or four. I know um, there's been many, many podcast networks that have loaded up into promos, um, you know, spots right at the beginning of the show. I mean, not as pre-rolls, but kind of embedded in the early part of the show and, and got them out of the way, right? So they've trained their audience kind of to somewhat fast forward through the first part of their show, right? And, and that's not really the best practice if you want to get good ROI, I would right. think. Uh, I don't say this a lot, but I use, I use an app where I can set the start time of the episode. And there's a show that I've been listening to for years and years and years. But for the first few minutes, they, they go through, hi, how are you? Uh, they talk about their, their live show tours, this city, that city. It takes them an average of four and a half minutes to get to the content. And in the app that I use, I have that show set to start at four and a half minutes in. Tyler, you can't sit with us anymore. Yeah, all right. That's, I think it really matters and it's got to be part of the content. And I think part of the reason you want to work with a network or someone who is the hammer or your protector as an advertiser is to understand You've got to trust us to create something that's going to resonate with the fan base of this show and to make it really good in where we do it, how long the spot is. Again, if it's a phenomenal spot and you expected it to be 60 seconds and it's three minutes, go with it. If it's a phenomenal spot that's organic and authentic and it happens to be 57 seconds, that's what it is. It just needs to be great and actually perform for you. You know, and it's my show's like you would probably listen to my show. You'd probably set it to twelve minutes because the first ten minutes, 
is not about tech news. It's just about me, what's going on, what's been happening, the ad spot. And, you know, and so you'd go, oh, Todd's not going to start the content to 12. And I have listeners that do that. But I also catch them at the other end. I say, hey, don't forget. I throw, you know, I throw it in there somewhere. Don't forget. Oh, I think I still hear their ads. I mean, yeah. I, I, I listen to this particular show. I listen to the mid-rolls. I listen to the post-rolls. And, I, I, and yeah, later on, they're saying, don't forget. We're going to be in this city, that city. I just... I tell them, don't forget about the sponsor. Go back, it's on the website, click the link. You know, I, I hit them because I know they've advanced the first 12 minutes, missed the ad. Yep. And so I always hit them at the end or somewhere three quarters of the way through. Let's see if we can get hashtag Tyler ruining podcasting <laughs> trending. No, no, no. no you know, no, to no. what you said, Peter, I, I think a lot of times I can't get that message conveyed directly to the, to the agency, to the advertiser, because it's such a giant game of telephone when you think about it. It starts with the product manager at Procter & Gamble or whatever. It trickles down to their agency, to their marketer, to their creative director. Then it goes to mid-roll. Then it comes to us. Then it goes to my ad ops person. Then it goes to my host. And if the host has something really valuable to say about the campaign, a lot of times it's really it's difficult to get it back all the way up that food chain. So we go back to you talking know? about buying, you know, 400 shows at once and having 400 upstream, downstream... I'm going to give you a real good example of this. I, I tell this one all the time because it's my best. I've got several. This happened to be Thomas's English Muffins. They came in. They wanted to buy some campaigns on our shows. It was really important to them. Sorry if anybody's listening from Thomas's, but it was really important to them that we talk about nooks and crannies. Understood. It's a, it's a white bread product. You know, non-GMO, but it's a white bread product. And they wanted us to talk about butter. So I have a nutrition diva. She's an opera singer, but also a you know, registered dietitian uh, and a fabulous expert, true subject matter expert, book author. She knew she could sell her audience on Thomas's English muffins. She says everything in moderation. It's, a, it's, it's a, something you do once in a while, but don't top it with butter. Put almond butter on it. Put, you know, smush up some blueberries or hummus or something like that. We knew we could introduce new people to Thomas's English muffins who were so rigid in their dieting and their eating that they would not typically take that as a treat or even eat it. We tried to get that message back. It, it, we couldn't do it. So Is that happens a lot. Really hungry right now oh, for a yeah. warm English muffin yeah, with hungry. melted butter in it. Oh hey, man! So. Uh, what do you guys think about heartbreaks versus soft breaks? And is there a risk of us running into an issue with the FTC around clarity of advertising uh, versus content? You know, I hope not. I mean, I really do from a content standpoint. But I, it all goes back to me to the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world. Again, if you saw a five-minute adventure with the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world, you know that it's for Dos Equis. You're not fooling anybody. It's just really entertaining. And my hope is that anybody who comes in and looks at one of these hosts really talking about why the product or service benefited them or why they used it or a funny personal shared experience around it. Again, people are educated enough to understand what this is, especially when it has a promo code, especially when you're thanking these people at another place in the podcast. Again, as we all deal with this, certainly it's an issue in digital and social media where influencers are posting something without clearly identifying it here. But the difference is if you've got someone saying, again, I, for my own business, needed to hire somebody and I found Jessica and she's amazing. She's so funny. She has revolutionized my business in this way and I found her in ZipRecruiter. And I've got to tell you, I can't thank them enough. I've been working with them for years. They've been a part of my podcast and they really helped me find Jessica. That's not the expectation and understanding of your audiences should be clear, I hope and believe. Yes, but you believe it. There's a lot of people out there who aren't 
sort of differentiating that or presenting it in a way that is credible. I think I do think we may face some FC, FTC regulation at some point because there are going to be people who abuse the system. You know, it's not going to be us. Maybe Tyler, but no, 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 no. I'm not. I am that. You guys are ruining that one. You guys are ruining that one. Todd said no pre rolls. Looks like a Tyler fire. <laughs> I'm I'm interested though. You keep bringing up. Uh, um, you're talking about a couple things with ad experiences. Obviously, the the power of the host red ad in podcasting. But then you're also bringing up the the Dosecki's most interesting man in the world. And this is something that I, I really want to see come to podcasting. Host red ads are always going to be powerful. It's always going to be, you know, perhaps the 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 cream of the crop um, in in terms of advertising. I think I I remember seeing Ed McMahon sell Alpo on the Tonight Show. Like it's host red ads are are a powerful thing. Clearly, the Dosaki's powerful or most interesting man has been a powerful ad for you. Is is that kind of campaign going to? come to podcasting and be effective in podcasting. First of all, let me just add in, if Secchi's comes to my show and sponsors my show, I am sponsored by Dosecchi's. I'm going to be proud to say that to my audience. You know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to have to worry about any clarity. My audience is going to know, I've tried to get Red Bull to be a sponsor of my show for years. And I probably sold more Red Bull because they're not my sponsors because I've complained about them not being my sponsor. So, you know, if Dosecchi comes to my show, they, my audience is going to know they're my sponsor. Does, does Geico ads qualify as creative ads? What do you guys think? <laughs> Are you yes. talking about what you see on television yeah. with the Geico? Well, I mean, it, it, it really, some of it in podcasts. it's some of it's, some of it's really funny. And, and I think it expands on your conversation, your question there. And the answer is yes, I really do. <laughs> I think, Every brand should be looking at creative storytelling specifically. There are so many brands that have a human touch point out there in different stories and the universe out there. I mean, again, we all know Tom's Shoes. And Tom's Shoes, for, if you're not familiar, if you buy a pair of shoes, they donate a pair of shoes to a child in need. I think that's remarkable, a person in need. But where does the story go? Who's the person that receives that shoes? What walk of life do they then lead? Where does it go? And I do think that podcasts are the perfect ways to explore that. And it's really through unique, engaging content. It can be comedic. It can be interactive. It can be poignant, dramatic storytelling. But I do think brands are going to want and need to play in this space to engage with their audiences. And great, you're going to need a couple things for that. You're going to need real trust from brands. You're going to need really gifted storytellers and you're going to need networks that can truly handle distribution and promote and get, if you will, earballs to this. Because what makes this different right now is distribution through digital video is ubiquitous. You can have a great producer create your content. You can pay for amplification on Twitter or on Facebook or on Snapchat. You can't really do that in podcasting. It's one of the things I think that is good. So working with a network like yours or yours or mine or yours or yours, I think is important for those brands as they look to do that, but they're going to have to have a great degree of trust in allowing that to happen. I think that's brilliant. And, you know, to the point that started this discussion, as long as it's disclosed, you know, and it doesn't cross a line where you can't tell if it's an ad or you should right. be able to, you should know that it's been paid for. Right. So I'm going to pose a question. Does, does the podcasting need radio or does radio need podcasting? Need. I mean, I, I don't think either needs each other. They can both yeah. coexist and grow, they, and they can both benefit from each other. I, I don't... Um, 
I, I think need is a is an is an interesting word there. I don't, I don't know that either needs needs the other. I will slightly disagree. I think that we've seen radio contract. I think um, the radio audience that listens to talk radio for something like NPR, right? So our, our chairman said on a panel today that that is maybe the one area where the radio audience and the podcast audience for NPR blend together. But for most places, it really doesn't. They're distinct audiences. But I, I do think the reason radio needs podcasting is this value of time that people are now looking at. They're very conscious of it. So for me, I can tell you in my own personal experience, I really stopped listening to my Pandora or Spotify playlist or channels when I work out. I'm not just turning that on and working out. I'm now listening to a podcast that makes me laugh, that entertains me, that informs me or educates me because it's, it's me being conscious of the value of time. I'm working out and getting the benefit for my body and then also for my mind. And I think there's a shift that's dramatically happening with people. And I don't think that podcasting needs radio for that. I'm not quite sure how radio fits into those pieces, but I do think radio is going to need podcasting in those places because you're going to start to see music be more used for shared experiences and when you're alone and that really valuable moment of that alone personal time on your commute, when you're mowing the lawn, when you're cooking dinner, when you're working out, that's going to be used for different things. And so, you know, does podcasting need radio? I, I, I mean, let's, let's, let's think about that, right? Right. I mean, is it just the audience that radio brings to podcasting? Is the is the is really really the value prop there? I mean, sure. There's there's a lot of listeners. You know, we've talked talked today at the conference about how um, more people have not listened to a podcast still than have, and and radio's got massive um, a massive amount of listeners. Right, so so sure, I think podcasting could absolutely benefit from from so moving that audience. We're almost, we're almost out of yeah. time, so what I want to do is each one of you uh, thirty great. seconds pitch and contact information. Okay, Macmillan Podcasts, quickanddirtytips.com. I'll keep it simple. You want to go next? Really good. Um, WarnerMediaGroup.com/slash/podcast, and uh, I'm Tyler Moody. You can find me on the internet. Like it. And I'm Peter Morris, the CEO of Podcast One. We're at podcastone.com with 300 of the top podcasts that are out there from Adam Carolla to Shaq to TI to Caitlin Bristow and so many others. Please check us out. Thank you, Digital Hollywood, for giving us the option here to live stream here at their event. And of course, we want you to go over to newmediashow.com and subscribe to the podcast. Just click that subscribe button, whether you're an iOS user or Android. Get in there and get subscribed to the show. And, of course, send us your stickers. We're doing our sticker exchange. You can find the information in the show notes. I'm Todd at Blueberry.com or at Geek News on Twitter. Rob? Uh, Rob at... Uh, uh, Rob. <laughs> Rob at RobGreenlee.com on Twitter. And I can also... My, my email address is RobG at Lipson.com. So you can find me there. But thank you for tuning in thank to you. the New Media Show Live. We'll see you next time on the New Media Show podcast next Saturday from the regular studio.